Good morning. I'd like to read, as we did last week, again to begin our time together, from the greatest sermon ever preached, as Dr. Luke records it in chapter 6 of his gospel. Picking up where we left last week, Jesus said, To you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. I think it's fitting with a word like that that we need to pray again. The Spirit of the living God, the Lord, there's no way we can love our enemies without your powerful presence in our life, God, without a trusting faith, a confidence, Lord, in your good purposes in all things, your sovereignty over all things, Lord God, a confidence in who you are and, and who we are in Christ. We pray, Lord, as we turn to your word, as we consider how the teachings of Jesus shaped the church and still shape our lives even this day. We pray, God, that that shaping, that molding, that working out the plans you have for us, we call sanctification, would continue this morning and that this message today would be part of that, Lord God, that we would learn what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The church of Jesus Christ was built to last. It was built on his perfect life and miracles, his teachings, his ministry, and his resurrection. And according to scripture, it's often referred to as Jesus being the cornerstone of the church. The cornerstone is the first giant rock laid in the foundation of a building where every other uh, rock is built upon that foundation stone, that cornerstone. And in the series that we're going through, Built to Last, when church was, was family, we're considering seven uh, blocks, so seven uh, blocks upon which the church is built. And the first building block laid for the church on that cornerstone that we're going to talk about this morning is a church that is flourishing, that is strong in the Lord, is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so that's our emphasis this morning. We're going to talk about what does it mean to be a people and a church family that are empowered by the Holy Spirit. To do that, we're looking at the story, the account, the record of the church in Antioch, found in Acts chapter 11 and then other subsequent passages in the book of Acts. Antioch, as we mentioned last week, the church was founded in A.D. 42, and it can be found now the ruins of, of it in modern-day Turkey. And here we see, first and foremost, a church that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's the first building block of a flourishing church. And so recorded in the account of, of Antioch are three explicit references to the Holy Spirit. I, I studied this week the book of Acts, kind of cover to cover. We would be here for many, many weeks just looking at all of the explicit and implicit references to the Holy Spirit. In fact, the, 
the name of the book could really be the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is all over. But there are three references that are direct. And let me just start by looking at those three. And it'll be on the screen. The first one uh, has to do with a leader named Barnabas. A Barnabas, and we talked about this last week, Barnabas was sent from Jerusalem to Antioch from uh, the church headquarters to this outpost, little new gathering of believers that were made up of both people from Jewish descent and Gentiles. And he was sent to check out what was going on there. And it says in, in Acts chapter 11, verse 24, it'll be on the screen, it says, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. A Barnabas, if you've studied scripture, is known as an encourager. We talk about Barnabas being a terrific encourager because there's many references to, to Barnabas being an encourager, someone who would say the right thing, someone who would say, that class is half full, not half empty. It's just a, an optimistic kind of personality. Why do we say that with the references that we see here? Well, well, some people are just uniquely given that ability to be great encouragers, and Barnabas was, was that par excellence. Why? Well, I wonder if maybe Paul, that he's traveling with oftentimes, Maybe he was kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. Maybe he was a little bit curmudgeonly. Maybe he'd wake up and, oh, the coffee's cold today. Oh, no, it's iced coffee, Barnabas would say. Or, well, we got such a long way to walk and these sandals are falling apart. Oh, I love a spring day. I mean, I was Barnabas to Paul and to other people. And what was it about Barnabas? It says in Scripture, verse 24, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. And so the very first leader described who was a leader within the church of Antioch. The first one named the description here that he was filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit means to be led by the Spirit of the Anointed One, to be led by the Spirit of Christ. And to be led by the Spirit of Christ means that everything you think and do and say and that your outlook on life is permeated by His Spirit by his presence. And we'll talk about this later in the service, but there, there's a yielding to the Spirit. There's a giving over to his will. There's a surrendering of one's personal plans and, and pride and, and prerogatives and saying, Lord, what is your will? Jesus modeled that for us, didn't he? When he said, Father, if, if it be your will, please take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. That's what it means, as Jesus expressed it, to be spirit-filled, to be led by the Spirit. It means every part of your life is charged and packed and loaded with the power of God. We get out of the way, the Spirit comes and, and works in us and through us. Scripture often will talk about an anointing. Jesus was the anointed one, and now he sends that anointing by the Spirit onto his people. And so we see here in the church in Antioch, the very first lesson for today, a healthy, thriving church that's built to last has spirit-filled leaders like Barnabas. Way more than just an encourager. Way more than just a positive outlook on things. He was filled with the Holy Spirit that impacted every aspect of his ministry, his leadership. This week, friends, I have uh, 
news of traveling. I'm traveling the first time during COVID, the first time I'll be on a plane. I'm suffering for the Lord by flying to Santa Barbara, California. I know. I know. I'll suffer for the Lord. I'm, I've been invited to travel to Santa Barbara for our ECO, our denomination, a covenant uh, order of evangelical Presbyterians, a gathering in Sandy, uh, Santa Barbara, excuse me, Santa Barbara this week, where we are going to be meeting with candidates for ordination, men and women uh, who are being called forth to be uh, ordained as eco-pastors. This week in Santa Barbara, there will be two retreats back to back. The first retreat, the first couple of days, tomorrow to Wednesday, is retreat number one. Retreat number one, that's for new candidates, people that are are in the process, sort of just on the beginning part of the process or midway through, kind of up to the midway point. They're going to gather together. There's going to be training. There's going to be encouragement. There's going to be assessment. But mostly it's, it's a sense of that Barnabas spirit of, of encouraging. Yeah, this is great. Is there a sense of call in your life? Let's talk about it. Let's consider that. I'm flying down on Wednesday for retreat number two. Retreat number two is the second half of the ordination process. By this time, candidates have finished all of their seminary education. They finished all of their background checks. They finished all of the assessments. They finished nine hours of, of ordination exams, written exams. They've, they've done and completed all these different pieces, parts, and then they have to be assessed in person by men and women like myself who've been in leadership for a long time. And I pray that I would be a Barnabas to all those people that I interact with. It'd be easy to do that with that retreat number one because it's just meant to be super encouraging to people that are sensing a call to ministry and are on their, their way to ordination. But retreat number two, I'm, I'm supposed to put on the hat of being the assessor and ask those hard questions. So I pray I can do that with, with grace and with gentleness and kindness and, and be filled by the Spirit. Our denomination takes this very seriously. I'm happy to share with you that, that I won't be alone this week. Leaving tomorrow morning is our very own Sarah Goodale, our, our director of Next Gen and, and Outreach. You may not know this, along with uh, Sarah's promotion in this role, uh, she has been in seminary. Did you know that she has a full-time job and she's going to seminary full-time? And that you're supporting her, you're investing in her seminary education. So she's going to be down there for retreat number one. We're so excited to support her as she's uh, in the process uh, for ordination. I'll be there for retreat number two. But then uh, in March, I think, our very own David Miles, who's been here uh, for a decade now, uh, celebrating this month, and you've supported him over the years in, in seminary and his training, he's going Lord willing, to retreat number two. After he, I see you like scratching your head, you're getting hives a little bit. He has to take all of the tests. He has to take uh, all of that extra final effort. And then he will be uh, at the retreat number two in March. So, so excited to have uh, both of them. And both of them very much called and very much spirit-filled leaders in our church. We have to have and identify and raise up and look for Spirit-filled leaders. That's the first reference. The second reference is in the context of a worship service. Look at this one. Acts chapter 11, verse 27 to 28 says, Now during this time, now this is, a, the, we're jumping ahead a little bit chronologically. Remember, Barnabas is there. He sees everything. He, remember, he grabbed 
Saul, later known as Paul, and they serve for a year uh, teaching and, and discipling everyone. So this is a little bit later in the process, maybe a couple years into it. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. And so here we have another direct reference to the Holy Spirit, the the Holy Spirit that he predicted a severe famine. Now, when people think of a prophet, we often think of of, uh, some sort of forecaster, right? Someone who can predict the future, some maybe even a fortune teller. But oftentimes we've talked about this and we've clarified the biblical understanding of prophet is far less often a fortune teller as the prophet is a truth teller, right? We've talked about that. That prophets throughout scripture uh, speak truth, especially to the people of God, to, to get them on the right page with the Lord. Say, so you're not fearing the Lord, you're not trusting God. This is what's going to happen if you don't straighten out. And I'm here to, to say that hard truth. And oftentimes, prophets kind of have that hard edge because they see things very clearly in black and white. But only rarely are there occasions where there's actually some form of prediction. So what's happening here? Well, this is what I think. And I hope that the lights stay on. I don't think it was supernatural that Agabus predicted that there was a famine coming. Why do I say that? Well, because historians have evidence that that there were famines throughout the Roman Empire during this time. Remember I said the church was founded in A.D. 42. Claudius was, was emperor between A.D. 51 and 54. And during that time, in his incompetence, And in his poor leadership, there were known to be several famines popping up sort of like uh, wildfires in California throughout the empire. And so it was already happening all around. That's evidence number one. Evidence number two, who would be the first people who would be last to get food? Who'd be at the end of the food line? It would be these people in Jerusalem in this faraway province of the Roman Empire, second, third-class citizens to the empire. They surely would, would be the ones that would go without. Do you think old Claudius ever missed a meal? What do you think? Probably not. And so I would say, you know, is this prophetic that Agabus would stand up? Was it as though to say, Everyone in Jerusalem right now, I'm just coming here to visit you in Antioch. Everyone's perfectly fine. We know that there's food on the table. Everyone's getting their fill. But I predict something's going to happen, even though there's all this evidence. I don't think so. And yet, the power of the Holy Spirit was not so much in the predicting. It was in the bravery of Agapus to take a stand in that moment. For him to speak up was totally spirit-led. Now, we'll we'll look at this part of the story of of Antioch, the account of this church, in in, in the weeks to come. But but let me just give you a little sense of it. The headquarters of the church was in Jerusalem, and the believers in Jerusalem treated those in Antioch very, very poorly. 
The followers of Jesus in Jerusalem were all Jewish, and they taught, and they only knew to be a follower of Jesus, you must first be Jew, Jew, uh, excuse me, you must first be Jewish. Now think about all the other examples in Scripture. Think of all of the book of Galatians and all the fights in the later parts of the book of Acts of going back and forth. You have to be Jewish in order to be a follower of Jesus. Well, that was certainly what was being taught there. That's what was being said there. And I imagine Agabus as a leader, along with the others, those prophets that came down, they were coming with a history of saying disparaging things against this new so-called church, these Christians, this newfangled label in Antioch. Remember why they sent Barnabas in the first place. It wasn't to encourage. It was to check them out to find out what was going on. And so the Jerusalem church was a Jewish church, and many there believed that in order to be converted and saved to the way, you must first become a Jew. And here's Agabus in this church setting, surrounded by people that he's spoken of. He doesn't know them personally, but he's not shown love to them. He knows what's coming. He can see what's happening in Jerusalem. And he sets his pride aside. The spirit fills him. He sets aside his, his sense of his high position to stand up and to ask the very people that he's spoken down to, please help. Please help. I can imagine maybe having to bite his tongue. Please help your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Imagine the courage it would take to swallow your pride and to ask for help and to be willing to be led by the Spirit in such a powerful way. And we'll see later the incredible love and outpouring from the Christians in Antioch because they were taking care of family. The third explicit reference to the spiritual power uh, that was the first building block of this flourishing church comes in chapter 13. So you have to jump ahead a little bit to chapter 13. In chapter 13, so chapter 12 kind of takes us uh, to a little side account that Luke wants to cover. Then we come back to Antioch. Chapter 13, listen to this, chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. It says, Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, we all know, Simeon called Niger. Simeon called Niger. Niger is Latin for black. It's just to make clear that this is the Simeon who is African. That was his label they gave him. That was what they they named him to indicate that he was from Africa. Lucius of Cyrene, that very well could have been one of those first disciples that that shared the gospel, the good news with, with the Gentiles. He, as I mentioned last week, was from Libya. That's where Cyrene is in North Africa. And then uh, Menanen, who was brought up with Herod, the, and Herod, this is Herod Antipas. This is the same Herod that was responsible for the beheading of John the Baptist, the same Herod that was there at Jesus' trial. So you have five leaders, two of whom are Jewish by birth, three are Gentile from North Africa, from the Mediterranean, from different socioeconomic pool, five people of color, all of them, And it says, these are the leaders of the church. Verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord 
and not thinking this is just the five of them, thinking the whole church is together because that's what, what people do. They get together to worship the Lord, right? That's what we're doing right now. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, most of us probably aren't fasting. Is anyone fasting? I'm not fasting. But they were fasting. The Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Imagine this scene. The church leaders, the leaders of our church, the elder board, we call it the session. Imagine our session board, our core staff, our pastoral team and directors, we call that the core staff. Imagine if our elders were right here in the front row, our core staff on the other side, all the church gathered together, and in the context of a worship service, the Holy Spirit speaks to us and to our leadership, not to one leader saying, I'm sensing a call to Santa Barbara, but a sense of the leadership hearing from the Holy Spirit saying, three years into ministry, take Pastor Pete and one of the core staff and send them to Portland to plant a church. What do you think? Should we go? What do you think? What do you think? Would that happen? What do you think? Should we go to Portland and plant a church? Oh, thanks, Mom. My mom just said, my mother-in-law just said, sure. She's already tired of me. That would take some serious guts, wouldn't it? That would take, in the context of corporate worship, power. So how does it work? I may be wondering, how does this work? How does someone change in such a dramatic way and is used so powerfully to be such a strong encourager? And, and how does someone have the bravery to stand up and, and, and ask for help and speak truth and, and see what was coming into the future? How does a whole church leadership team and congregation make such a huge sacrifice? Well, for starters, we believe at MVC that the Bible was written by God through human authorship. And in God's wisdom, the Lord of God does not give us a formula for being spirit-filled. Why? Because the Lord knows our heart. And if he were just to give us a formula or a recipe or an equation, we would turn it into an idol. We would turn it into a commodity, wouldn't we? Boy, if, if you could just do A, B, and C and have power like that, we would monetize it, wouldn't we? No examples of that happening in the church, are there? 995 and you get this prayer, uh, prayer cloth or this vial of holy water? To bless your family. That doesn't actually happen. Does that happen? Oh, it does happen. Because God knows that we would take the, the essence of this great gift that comes only by the work of God in us. He does not give us a recipe. That's why this is called the book of Acts. It's not called the book of recipes or good ideas or great advice. All that the book of Acts gives to us is all that we need the results. Barnabas was filled with the Spirit. The result, many people were saved. We think about him being an encourager. He was also an evangelist. Agabus' boldness to speak, the result, lives were saved. Men, women, and children that were starving were provided for by the church. Because of the result of the work of the Holy Spirit, in control, Paul and Barnabas were sent out on the first great mission trip of the church. 
to plant many more churches throughout the empire. One of the most important truths in the Bible is that Christ lives in you if you are a believer in Christ. If you are a Christian, the Bible says that your life, your heart, is now a temple of the Holy Spirit, that the presence of the living God resides in you, and that he can love others through you. But the standard that we're taught as believers is unattainable without the inworking of the Holy Spirit. Think about just the passage we read from the greatest sermon ever spoken. It's one thing to love people that love you, care about people that that care for you, show respect for you, but Jesus is saying, love your enemy. How do we love an enemy? We can't even figure out how to forgive a a slight or a, a grievance that someone has done towards us. You know, our feelings are so hurt, we're so bruised, and we have to go back and recover. A kind of common language I know now these these days is being triggered. Your actions, your words, they're triggering negative emotions inside of me, and I can't believe I would allow negative emotions in my life and feelings about myself, and I can't have anything to do with you. Here, Jesus is talking about loving your enemy, not just an idea of an enemy, someone who's taking your stuff, give them more. Someone who slaps you in the face, Give them the other cheek. How could you possibly do that? It would take extraordinary patience and kindness. You would need to suspend your your, your natural sense of justice to show only grace and mercy. Now, we want grace and mercy for ourselves, right? When we're offended or when we offend God, I want God's grace. God, I'm sorry I hurt you. I'm sorry I did the wrong thing. Give me your grace and mercy. But this person who offended me, give them justice. How do we love like this? Only by the working and the filling of the Holy Spirit. So there is no formula for being spirit-filled, but I can say this much, submitting to the Spirit's control. All the songs we just sang were about giving our lives over to the Spirit of Christ. It's a daily occurrence. Colossians 2.6 says it this way, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, and how did we receive him? By grace through faith. Continue to live your lives in him. How? By grace through faith. By the working of the Holy Spirit. By the golden rule. To be spirit-filled is to be free of one of the great afflictions, I think, especially afflicts the church in America. And I want to speak directly to to you and to me here for American Christians. I think our our greatest impediment to being spirit-filled are two things. Number one, our pride. And number two, our worldliness. See, in in this context, in the context of, of the book of Acts, when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit, they received supernatural power that changed them, and what they needed to deal with with, was their fear. They were afraid of being murdered and martyred for Jesus. We don't have that same fear. Ours is our pride. They had to get over the sense of of loss that they would experience. They'd been dispersed. They'd been spread out because of the persecutions. They were going to lose everything. They had to to accept and trust and believe in the future glory, the hope that they had in heaven. But we have already built up our own artificial heaven here on earth. 
we need to lay down our worldliness for the glory of God. Tragically, too many American Christians don't know who the Holy Spirit is. And I think it's an it, a force, a power, not a person with a personality, an emotion, and communication. So of American Christians, they, they haven't experienced the power, so they're not fearful of, of these things, but they are prideful. They sing of heaven, but they pursue only the pleasures of this world. They are Christian in name only, and they do not fear the Lord. Worldly interests and goals take precedent. Because words are cheap. It's the actions that we take that spell out what we're really about. And I keep using the word they because I'm trying to be polite. But am I talking about myself? Am I talking about you? Is there pride in your life that needs to be confessed before we come to the table this morning? Worldly pleasures, goals that you've set, things that you value that will be gone in a matter of decades, years in your life. You know, we, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, when the Christians, now this is family conversation stuff. This is among Christians that are watching here and those Christians that are here, we're talking about this. Christians have differing views of the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit worked in the, old, in the, in the book of Acts and how this Holy Spirit works now, and there's debates and arguments, and we get distracted by so many things that preoccupy us with the signs and wonders instead of just looking at the results of a church that's spirit-filled and saying, I want to be that. I want to pursue those things. I want to set aside the differences I have with my brothers and sisters who express their worship in different ways and understand the, the uh, spiritual fruit in different ways. I just know for myself, for my community, for you and me, I want to see God work powerfully for his glory. I think the greatest difference between American Christians today and those believers who were first saved, who were first called Christian from the Near East and from Africa, and those Christians I've met when I visited the second and third world, is that we are prone here in America to reduce faith to religion at worst, maybe a little bit better as a rule of life, Maybe the best some can reach to is, well, I, no, I have a relationship with my friend, Jesus. But to these men and women in the world, J.B. Phillips puts it this way, to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, to be spirit-filled, he says, quote, it was an invasion of their lives. Uh, can you imagine, you, you start, we just started a small group. Hey, so what's it like for you being a Christian? You, you once were lost and now you're found. Uh, what is it like for you to be a Christian? Just share a little bit of your testimony. And what would most people say? Oh, well, you know, we, you know I, I grew up in church and then I kind of walked away during college and we got married and figured we're going to have kids. I guess we go to church. And da, 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 da. It was an invasion of my life. The kids? No, Jesus. <laughs> they do not hesitate to describe a Christ-centered life that is spirit-filled in every aspect of life. So let me ask you this question. Do you have that same power in your life? It's available. Have you experienced it 
in your life. I mean, like right now. Let, let, let me give you a couple of scenarios. What if, heaven forbid, I get struck down by COVID, Santa Barbara. I come back next week and I have a fever on Sunday morning. No one else is available. Would you be ready to share your testimony? Would you be ready? What if our church needed to make a massive decision that would impact us for years to come? Financially, it might even ruin the church, but we, we were trying to discern God's will and something that, that would bring glory to God, even though it would just ruin the church financially, the structure, the, the institution of MVC. But, but what if the Holy Spirit was speaking to you to take a stand and say, I believe this is what the Lord would have for us to do? Would you be ready to do that? Okay, more realistic. Corey, I apologize. What if the sound system blew up? Live stream's working, but there's no sound, no speakers, no amplification. And we have a small numbers here this morning. Would we be ready to raise our voices, even straining our voices to sing praises to God so that everyone in the valley would hear? I believe we would. I believe we would. But it means laying down our pride. It means laying down at the feet of Jesus our goals, our plans, our desires, our wish list, and saying, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. The church that's built to last, first and foremost, is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So what's the application? Here's the application. Friends, listen. Have a holy expectation. The supernatural will happen whenever we gather together in worship. And have a holy expectation whenever you gather with your small group. Have a an expectation, the holiness of God will show powerfully when you grab your spouse's hand, you grab your child, you grab a friend and say, can we pray together? Where two or more are gathered, we know that he's here. Have a holy expectation of the supernatural. To know what it would look like and what it does even now look like when the spirit fills this place, fills your home. Supernatural things happen. Decisions are made. Lives are changed. People get saved. People make tremendous sacrifices that those on the outside world say, that is really foolish and ridiculous. Why would someone give away so much for charity? Radical commitments are made. Big goals are set and get done only by the work of the Holy Spirit. Can God show up powerfully right here? Yes, he can. And I'd like to invite the worship team to come up and get ready to lead us in, in worship as we conclude our service. But I'd like to invite you to go to a time of prayer with me. And the first thing I want to lead us in prayer is to lead us in prayer of confession. Pride, worldliness. The Bible says, do not quench the spirit, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want you to be defeated and fruitless. He wants you to fulfill the purposes in your life that he has for you. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. I'll end with this and then we'll pray. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. Let's go to him with confidence now. Lord God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the example of Barnabas, this good man, this man filled with the Holy Spirit, this evangelist. God, we thank you for the example of Agabus, who by your spirit was able to predict, but then stand and use his voice to speak a word requesting of help, Lord, but also just imagine the healing that happened there of all that animosity that had maybe built up between the church in Antioch and the church in Jerusalem. We thank you, Lord, for the example of, of leaders willing to risk so much for the greater purposes of your kingdom. Oh, God, may we be a people like these. May we follow the example, Lord God, and may we see the filling of your spirit, results that bring you glory. God, we confess our pride, uh, since that the whole world revolves around me, that, that my needs and desires should come first. Lord, I just lay that down at your feet. I pray that that would be removed, that would be filled with your spirit. As, as John the Baptist said, he must decrease so that Jesus would increase. And Lord God, I confess worldliness. We confess it to you now. We have so much, Lord God. There are brothers and sisters around the world who have so little, and yet they are rich in good works and, and, and rich in a sense of hope, Lord God. And we are so distracted in our culture today. We pray, God, that that distraction would be set aside this first day of the week, Lord, that we would fast from watching so much TV. We would fast from so much social media. We would fast from all the pleasures and desires and pursuits uh, that this great nation has to offer, Lord, and we would pursue Christ, our King. Amen.